Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Ghouls in the House. I am Natalie Latovsky. And I am Arnold T. Blumberg. And it's spooky season. Woo! It's the best month of the year, and we are working to churn out a few episodes to fill October, as we often try to do, ending with uh, what is becoming a tradition for the show, where we do a triple something or other for our Halloween episode. And we already have plans for that one. Should we trademark triple something or other? Triple something or other. (laughs) It's the ghouls in the house, triple something or other, coming Uh, to you this Halloween. A little clue is that we did a triple feature, I think, the first time. Mm -hmm. Then the next time we did triple haunting. That was last year. Mm -hmm. And this time it's going to be called triple mashup. And uh, we'll get to that. But we're also starting off the month with this episode which is one of the only times so far we've done something so incredibly timely that we're recording something within days of the debut of something. And I'm doubly excited because not only is it horror, but it's actually a Marvel production. And so we're going to be one of about, I don't know, 4,000 podcasts this week (laughs) talking about Werewolf by Night. Tonight, it is every hunter for themselves. Good luck. I'll be rotting for you. The first ever MCU TV special, which just debuted as we're recording this only a couple days ago on October 7th uh, on Disney+. And as part of uh, the Phase 4 shenanigans, which have been going on for a while in the MCU, a lot of the material that's been coming out has not been feature films, but series on Disney+. Plus. And in this case, for the first time, a self-contained, just under one hour special that was deliberately designed as a Halloween special that also introduces to the MCU some characters that are well known to anyone who's a fan of Marvel going back to the 70s horror boom that they did uh, back in the early part of that decade where a lot of Marvel characters, a lot of Marvel titles were suddenly focused on horror. And uh, we're going to talk about that, and we're also going to talk about a movie we found to pair it with, which is also going to be, uh, it's not brain surgery, because I guarantee you every other horror podcast, do you listen to a lot of horror podcasts? (laughs) Well, get ready, folks, because not only are you going to be hearing everybody talking about Werewolf by Night, but I'm sure every damn one of them is also going to talk about The Beast Must Die from 1974, because all of us, I think, were fooled by the initial trailers for Werewolf by Night into thinking this was a remake of Beast Must Die. Your overwhelming interest is the Luke Garou. Oh, yeah. The what? I prefer to call it Rolock. Call it what you like. The result's the same. Human flesh torn out and eaten. As one of you knows only too well. Because one of you, sitting here in this room, it's a werewolf. Which it turns out it really isn't. Which is fine. Which is fine. Yeah. Yes. But it did inspire a lot of people to immediately say, hey, this looks like a remake of Beast Must Die. And also nobody was critical about that. They were like, oh, this is neat. And I had never, we'd never seen that one. I've mm-hmm. heard about it for many years, including its infamous werewolf break, which we'll talk about. <laughs> so I thought, oh, this would be fun. So we watched that first, actually. And then we watched Werewolf by Night. And now here we are. It's worth noting, especially with very new material, uh, we're still going full spoilers. So if you had been hoping to watch Werewolf by Night, you haven't done it yet, go watch it. It's less than an hour. And then come back and listen. So how about Man-Thing? Wasn't that awesome? (laughs) That was one of my favorite parts. It really was, though. (laughs) I get it. It's funny because... I'm someone who's pretty well steeped in horror, but not in comics. So I don't have the reference points that you do. And so you got all excited. You were like, it's Man-Thing. And I was like, they couldn't come up with a better name than Man-Thing. They not just that they say it, though. Put they it never together. say Man-Thing. No. Yeah. But he, he looks very much like um, the sort of creature from Night of the Blood Beasts and or Teenage Caveman, right. which is 
the same suit yeah. <laughs> that they used again in Teenage Caveman. Because the face of the man thing has that look of like a gas mask that's had like stuff grown all over it. Yeah. Because he has like tendrils. He's so cute though. Uh, well, and that's the thing. And he will that, melt you. And that's the thing, yes. <laughs> is that uh, never would I have ever expected uh, man thing to show up and be so instantly lovable. He's as like a character. cuddly for yes. a mossy swamp creature that will burn you alive. Which I, I granted, I've never read nearly all of the stuff about Man Thing that has been done over the years, and like I think I've probably mentioned before, although I spent a lot of my career in the comics industry and also as a lecturer and teacher about comics history and, and literature. I do have a point, particularly into the 2000s, where a lot of my active knowledge of things kind of drops off. So whatever has been done with him, particularly in the last 20, 25 years, I may not be as familiar, but I don't think anyone has ever really done Man-Thing in a way to make him cuddly and cool like that, which mm -hmm. I think is wonderful. But so a little step back. So Werewolf by Night is set in the MCU, although except for one brief reference to heroes at the in like a beginning narrated montage, there is literally no connection whatsoever in this story to anything that we've seen in any other Marvel stuff. So another thing, too, is if you're not a, steeped in the movies, you it don't need it. Doesn't matter. Just jump in and enjoy this, and it can be its own thing. And uh, it is the first attempt by the MCU folks to really lean into horror. And... Um, one of the many brilliant choices I think they made, and I, I feel bad I don't know if it's Gaiachino or Gaiachino. Uh, Michael Gaiachino is what I'll go with. But if I'm wrong, I apologize. He's made his career over the years becoming one of the biggest forces in film composition, mm. soundtrack uh, scoring. And for instance, did the score for the Star Trek movies, the Kelvin timeline Star Trek movies. We are a Star Trek podcast after <laughs> all. And, but a lot of other stuff. But in this case... Uh, was also directing and shaping this. And one of the key choices he made was he wanted this to be an homage to classic horror, especially universal movies of the 30s and 40s. And a lot of people keep getting decades wrong when talking about this. I've seen a lot of people saying what a great homage this is to 50s horror. No, it's not. <laughs> it's... 50s horror is real schlocky. Yeah, that's not what this is. This is an homage to the Universal movies of the 30s and 40s. And in fact, even down to the title card where the font and the style is deliberately very 30s, 40s style film title card. And it was all done in black and white, which I only just found out reading this just earlier. It wasn't until almost the last final post-production cut of the special that Kevin Feige, who runs all things MCU, agreed to let it run in black and white. Apparently he wasn't 100% sold on that idea until they really finished a cut of the whole thing. I mean, if it's meant to be an homage, yeah. why wouldn't you have it? And in fact, one of the things I was thinking while we were watching it was probably one of the biggest problems with doing black and white today is that First of all, it's tough to get the contrast right. Like, black and white today doesn't look like black and white in the past. It looks much more samey. And you really need to up the contrast with black and white to really make it look more stark. And I feel like not a lot of people, in terms of cinematography, really know how to shoot in black and white or shoot something for black and white mm. that works. And this works. Because it's clearly somebody who has understands the aesthetic and gets the idea of shadows on a wall and how important it is that German expressionism to come back. The other plus to doing this in black and white is that it's a very stylized story. It's a very stylized group of people. Each person has their own sort of panache to them. It's a very structured secret society everything is weird and odd and different but also rigid and old worldy but also the weapons clearly are a mix of technology and sort of i don't know analog like axes but also like crazy taser stun guns I actually, it has both i actually thought at one point were we going to find out that these troopers were like ex-shield agents or something and the thing is it could have been so easy to do that and they didn't yeah so it's kind of an an interesting way to take you out of time 
when you do this because it's a very contained story. Quite literally, it's taking place not just a story that you're going to get to ride through start to finish. No, like, ambiguity, no did they, didn't they kind of stuff. So you get the full story start to finish, but it's also contained in that it's just sort of the hunter's lodge of this estate, plus this labyrinthian garden maze structure tomb. I don't know. Which, place. by the way, some of those outside sets, I don't think you've ever seen it. We should need to watch that at some point. Reminded me very strongly of um, Dr. Moreau's Island Place in the original 30s version, mm. Island of Lost Souls. There's a, I'm sure intentionally. I'm sure, yeah, right. But the greatest part about it is, as a viewer, you don't know when this is happening. Yeah, because this is Marvel, right. right? So you could actually have something taking place in the 40s, but there are these sort of super soldiers with taser guns that we just never knew about because yeah. it's Marvel. Because we know the Hydra stuff existed during World yeah. War II. Right. So that's something that's very cool right up until the very, very end of the film when they make it much more clear about when the movie is taking place. Mm -hmm. And... It's a cool shift where you go that whole movie, you're watching this story, and you as the viewer, you're not just watching an homage to the 40s, you're kind of immersed in a very 40s world. They they use like Victrolas. They're like there's yeah. no there's no like announcer system, walkie-talkie, whatever. It's like they're using a fire tuba and like bells and horns and runes and all this stuff and you just don't know where you are in terms of time and place until when, basically the final scene when the butler has to like set up bloodstone's speech to everybody he winds it up he has mm -hmm. to put in a and also okay step back again so it's called werewolf by night i know we'll, we'll kind of take it piece by piece i guess in this it's for anybody that's a comic fan all right i'll step back even more so first of all, as I mentioned, this gives me a chance to talk a little bit about stuff I used to love talking about anyway, the whole history of all these comics. And so a lot of it comes from uh, a desire to bring some of the horror characters of Marvel's 70s horror boom into the MCU, starting with the title character, Werewolf by Night, who did have uh, a number of appearances over the years. I've subsequently discovered that beyond the time where I was familiar with reading it, there has been a second incarnation of Werewolf by Night, who's a different character. But the one I remember is Jack Russell, which is surely one of the silliest like <laughs> names, but also cute. And it is Jack Russell that's the name used in this one. And basically the short version, and by the way, I did actually write about this quite a bit in my book, Journey of the Living Dead, because I have a whole section in there where I talk about the the Comics Code Authority and how that affected horror storytelling in comics starting in the 50s. What happened, anybody who knows that at all, if you know that, and you probably do because you're listening to us, you know that after the, the censorship scare in the 50s with comics and all the horror comics, the Comics Code was a self-regulating thing that came in that basically destroyed any ability to tell stories about horror themes for a good 20 years. And that specifically included uh, vampires, werewolves, ghouls, zombies. They listed everything and you couldn't do it. And then things started loosening up. And around 1971, several things happened that I won't go into all the details, but I discovered a version of that timeline I wasn't even quite aware of, that several things happened along the way in 71 that loosened things up. And one of the things that they changed at that point was that you were able to deal with some of these monsters if you did them and this is sort of a paraphrasing of the revision of the code if you did them in the style of the classic literature and films in other words what they were saying is don't do them in a gratuitous or gory way but if you do them in an elegant way like the movies we know from the past or the old books which also by the way for a while still meant they couldn't do zombies because zombies had no literary tradition which is why famously or infamously Marvel for a while when they tried to do zombies had to come up with a new word. So they called them Zuvembis until they could finally drop that ridiculous thing. And might I add how like ridiculous as well it is that a group of people would be like, you can do stories 
about the man beast who rips out people's throats or, you know, the count who uh, turns into a bat and feasts on the blood of innocence. But do it tastefully. Exactly. And then it's fine. Right. Because then it's theater. Right. Then it's it's like it's a stage performance. Right. This is this is Bram Stoker. This is right. literature. Which, it, by the way, we're also currently enjoying immensely uh, Shudder's latest documentary series, Queer for Fear, which takes a look at the history of horror through a queer lens. Mm. And boy, I'm learning things I never knew before. The stuff I just found out about Bram Stoker's personal life and like ways of looking at his work i never knew and it's fascinating it's It's fascinating it's wonderful if you have to definitely watch queer for fear on shutter it's a great follow-up to hard noir which was their documentary on looking at things through a black perspective in horror and this is a queer perspective and it's just wonderful um but anyway so after that code revision that was floodgates were opened and there was a contingent of creators at Marvel in the seventies who said, let's bring the monsters into Marvel, but do them in a way that meshes with our superheroes. And in very short order, Marvel had comics that introduced the Frankenstein monster, Dracula, tomb of Dracula, probably one of the biggest hits of all of them. And also the place where blade, the vampire hunter was introduced. So that brings up blade who of course we now know is also coming to the MCU Uh, Werewolf by Night, Um, even characters like Ghost Rider kind of came about as a result of this. But so there was a huge boom in the 70s of horror comics. Oh, and another character that also popped up then, who also popped up on in DC Comics at the same time. Group of the same guys, they were shuffling back and forth across the street to both companies. It's a very convoluted story that I won't bore you with all the details, but basically several of these creators were talking to each other, simultaneously came up with the idea of a scientist who is altered while working in the swamps into a creature that is sort of an elemental creation of the swamps. Um, Marvel got their version out of the gate first. Um, Then DC did their version. Marvel threatened to sue. They didn't. But so basically... The same kind of character came out on both companies at the same time. DC's version arguably is a little more popular and a little more well-known out there in pop culture and is called Swamp Thing and had a couple of movies, a TV show, all kind of stuff. Marvel's version is Man Thing, who I didn't even realize had a sci-fi channel movie in 2005 that looks terrible. I can't believe Marvel got there first and it was a creature combined of man and swamp yeah. And Marvel was first out of the gate, but they didn't use the word swamp and instead just used like a man thing. I really don't know how that happened, but that's how it happened. Like, yeah. no one thought to use swamp. Like, DC was probably, like, laughing reading the first Possibly. Marvel comic, be like, they, they didn't use swamp? We can use swamp. Let's do swamp. Swamp thing. <laughs> So anyway, uh, the other thing that, of course, I and any fan remembers, and it was like the tagline for Man-Thing is like, Man-Thing would turn up, he was part of like this little corner of the Marvel Universe where he's in the Everglades, and there's all kind of weird stuff happening in the Everglades and the Marvel Universe. It's the nexus of realities, if I remember right. Well, the 70s were also very into cryptids. Yeah. Howard the Duck turns up through the nexus, I think, in the Everglades originally, I think. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. Anyway... The, one of the main things about Man-Thing is that he's formerly Dr. Ted Salas. He's now the Man-Thing. And one of his key powers is that if you're afraid, and particularly if you're a bad person who fears because you fear the Man-Thing, because ultimately it's the fear of justice. And the tagline usually was a variation of whosoever knows fear burns at the Man-Thing's touch. And it's like when you're afraid, Man-Thing touches you, he can burn you to ash. And uh, the, one of the fascinating things about it is, yes, Man-Thing turns up in Werewolf by Night, the TV special, but they only refer to him as Ted, which is right. Which but, is his name. Which is really cute. He's never called Man-Thing. And uh, a couple times we see him burn people to a crisp and they are very clearly afraid when he does, but they never spell it out. They just, if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you just think, oh, the monster can burn people. That's fine. I love the way they handled the character the way I would want them to handle him without bothering to fill in the details. And again, so having done the comic stuff, 
in this special, we're witnessing a group of strange people who are ostensibly monster hunters being called to the home of Ulysses Bloodstone, a legendary monster hunter who has died and who apparently possessed this object itself called the Bloodstone, because everybody in Marvel is named after the thing. I guess. Uh, which Except Swamp is not there Swamp for Man-Thing, so he's not named after the thing. And the Bloodstone appears to have a lot of uh, abilities, powers that help you in a quest against monsters, including weakening monsters, apparently. Bloodstone's widow is holding a contest, a sort of most dangerous game riff, which is why a lot of people thought it was going to be Beast Must Die, but we'll get to that, in which all of these other monster hunters are going to get the chance to possess the Bloodstone if they can defeat the unknown monster that has been captured and placed on the grounds for them to hunt, which we later find out is Man-Thing. And among the people that have gathered is... Probably the least uh, formidable-looking guy, our star, Jack Russell, who's apparently a monster hunter, but is who who we will find out, is actually there because he's the Man-Thing's friend and a werewolf, and himself a monster, therefore, and there mainly to help Man-Thing get out and save him. But also present is Ulysses' daughter, Elsa, who apparently went her own way a long time ago, but has come back for what she believes is rightfully hers. Uh, and uh, clearly one of the main themes that's going to come up in this, as it so often does, is the real monsters are the humans and not the monsters themselves. They kind of imply as well it's that his widow is her stepmother, so it's his second wife. And she kind of implies that Elsa took after her mother more than her father. Yeah. And it seems like it's entirely possible that after her mother died, she decided, you know what, I'm fine. I'll just, I'll peace out because this, this woman, as you see throughout the special, like her stepmother who's running the show here at first just seems kind of delightfully weird and quirky. And by the end you realize it's just completely unhinged and becomes this sort of representative i don't even call it a metaphor i mean it's just clearly representative of fanatical devotion to any kind of order or religion or group or whatever it is that she sees this whole thing this hunt the way the bloodstone is going to get passed on to someone as this like sacred rite that must be completed in a very specific way as all religious organizations <laughs> seem to have. Also, by the way, she's played by um, longtime character actor, Harriet Sansom Harris, who anybody who's a fan of any of these things will instantly recognize. I always remember her from X-Files. Um, she's in Adam's Family Values. Mm. Uh, but a lot of stuff, but she was a perfect choice for that. Yeah. Everybody in this, again, does a great job. Uh, you'll even spot um guy with a boombox from Star Trek Four, Kirk Thatcher, in this, and he does a nice job. Everybody in this is great, right down to our two leads um, playing the uh, playing Jack Russell is, I think it's Gail, Gail Garcia Bernal, mm -hmm. and Laura Donnelly is Elsa Bloodstone, and they're awesome, and one of the things I really enjoyed about this was it, I guess it depends because sometimes I would complain about the very thing I'm about to praise. I love the fact that this drops you in and doesn't bother filling in a lot of gaps. And I guess for me, the it, you could say, Oh, why, why would you say that? Cause you also complain about, it. I guess the problem is if it's done well, it works. And if it's not done well, it becomes a flaw for me. I would like to know eventually, but I like not, we didn't bother finding out how did Jack become a werewolf? Where'd this come from? What, what exactly is going on? We don't know. And it doesn't really matter in this case. Well, it's also not that kind of story because if this were an actual like full length movie, if we're like going for an hour and a half, two hours you and trying to origin. tell a contained story, yeah. you need the origin which eats up time. Yeah. And I, I much prefer them just telling a contained story because, number one, 
you know that since this is the MCU at this point, you you'll get an origin eventually at <laughs> right. some point. Right. Like you're going to you're going to find out about his adventure, yeah. <laughs> Jack Russell's adventures with man thing. He sort of implies and one of the other characters asks him about like his makeup. That's Joyce. He was saying it's to honor his ancestors. Yeah, that's right. And I feel like maybe that's going to tie in somehow that it's not that he became a werewolf, that he just is a werewolf that maybe this is just inherited his family yeah that's where he comes from because again another key point to remember here is although like the basic trappings are some of these characters certain elements are drawn from the comics like a lot of these things i i don't even remember nor do i care to what degree they have pulled a significant amount of material from the jack russell the comics and and you know Maybe it's well, I've gotten to a point in my life. I don't know. And I think I've talked about this before in other contexts. But I know there are fans who would go crazy. They're like, Well, they didn't adapt it exactly right. Or they didn't do this and this. And it's like, I don't care. The movies are their own thing. The shows are their own thing. They're doing their own thing. I, I Speaking of things. I was about to say, we should have a little counter. If this were on YouTube, yeah. there'd be a little counter for I, every time we've said thing. I was impressed at how much Man-Thing, for example, looked exactly the way he looks in the comics. It was an astounding piece of work that somehow also, as we've already said, manages to turn him into a lovable, warm character, yes, who clearly has a very close relationship, friendship with Jack, which also we get no explanation for. And if I remember correctly, and I might be wrong based on things I haven't read from later, I don't remember there ever being a connection between Werewolf by Night and Man-Thing, but I'm perfectly happy that the two of them in this version are friends, and it's fine by me. They're going to get sushi after, so... I mean, here's the thing about comics, right? Comics are soap opera. Comics change, characters change, storylines change. Every so often they got to zero it all out and start at the beginning again. So when you're adapting from comics, you really have no obligation to do anything any particular way. You just want to use a name because you like the concept of Jack Russell, werewolf guy. That's great because you don't have to make him any particular thing and they've already done that in the past like what is it now 12 14 15 years of movies they've already done that where sometimes they've done things as 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 detailed as practically recreating an exact origin for a character down to every story beat to characters where they've actually lifted like the story background of one character but gave that character the name of another character and it's like fine i'm okay with that because to me as a fan of the Marvel stuff from years ago, I love seeing a lot of this stuff coming alive, but I'm also happy for them to do what they think works for their version of it and give me the new version. And I'll be happy getting all the little pieces that go, oh, I know that and I know what that is and that name, but let's see what you do with it. And in the process, in this case, they produced an hour that clearly shows a love of horror history, of comics history. Even though it's Werewolf by Night, I feel that Man-Thing was really like the best part of this in some respects, the most interesting. And uh, and the level of violence was, first of all, they used a very old school trick of it's easier to get away with showing blood when you show it in black and white. But they really have a lot of violence in this for a Marvel project, but it's a horror movie, so why shouldn't there be? And even down to when we get the transformation, Jack's werewolf is a very old-school humanoid wolfman. He is not a wolf or a dog or some other creature. He's a wolfman. And, in fact, more humanoid-looking, I'd say, than even Lon Chaney Jr.'s because his face retains a lot of humanity Mm. to it. But I love that they could have done a full CGI transformation on screen. Instead, they show his hand for a second changing and the rest of it is done with shadows. And I thought that's an incredible amount of restraint to show. And it looks amazing. It's wonderful. Seeing her watching the transformation, she's trapped in a cage with him, watching it happen. We're looking at her looking at him while we see the shadow of his transformation behind her. And it's like, that is an amazing piece of work. 
the only real criticism I have is just sort of the the last act where it's this big fight of Jack, you know, trying to find a way to not harm Elsa when they force him to transform and taking out the rest of the hunters plus the crew plus her really crazy stepmother who is just like insane with like makeup like blood tears at that point just like spackled on her face is that they've taken a special that in every other way is such an homage to the 40s and to the 30s and they've injected it with a very modern fight scene that I couldn't watch any of it. It was full of strobing lights and swirling effects and that blood spatter on the camera. Oh, that I, do, you I hate. do hate the blood spatter on the camera. But I hate the, when, yeah. The strobing in particular, it was like, this is not the homage. Like, no. this is modern fighting. And I was a little disappointed about that. Was, I, I wanted them to really commit to it all the way through. Yeah, it was really a shame because, like, the main set piece of him as the werewolf is standard shaky cam strobe fighting. I only saw a little bit of him as a werewolf because I couldn't watch most yeah, of it. Yeah, it's a shame. And the it's interesting, we're also currently watching She-Hulk, which is also fun in its own way. And there was um, an episode, just they just did an episode where Daredevil's in it, and it's the same guy playing Daredevil who's in the Netflix show, Charlie Cox, and in the Netflix Daredevil, they had made it a point of like every season doing a hallway based fight that became sort of a trademark of the series. And this recent She-Hulk, they did a joke where he's very clearly set up to begin a major hallway fight and she just drops in and ends it in like 30 seconds or less really. And then in this, that final action sequence is sort of Jack taking out the entire group of Bloodstone troopers in a hallway. And I thought, oh, so here's the hallway fight we didn't get on (laughs) She-Hulk. But it's so it's it was very uncomfortable. And I've, as I've talked about quite a bit in recent episodes with you, I'm starting to get more like you than I ever was with some of the stuff. For me, the flashing was getting a bit much and it's a shame. But fortunately, that's a small part of it. And then the other the one of the nice thing was that they actually had this touch of color throughout. The bloodstone is red and every time the bloodstone appears, it is red amid a sea of black and white and gray. Mm-hmm. And then it was really a surprise. I did not expect it to happen at the very, very end of the episode. Suddenly, as as uh, Good has triumphed and Jack and Man-Thing have gotten away, well, Ted, as Jack and Ted have Jack gotten and away, Ted. and uh, and Elsa gets to sit back and claim her birthright and presumably take over the Bloodstone Manor and um set herself up for appearances in future movies. My, now my next thing is it's got to be Dr. Strange. We've got to get these people together. Basically mm-hmm. she suddenly starts transforming into full color and then the whole thing becomes color. And actually for me, the thing I loved most was I was thinking, Oh, this is great. I hope we get to see man thing in color. And there comes green man thing. I thought, Oh, this is awesome. And they did all that while uh, somewhere over the rainbow was playing. Yeah. So it gave yeah. you that very wizard of Oz transitioning from reality to fantasy. I, I would say that it, I'm sure it could have been better. It It's, you know, it was good. I'm not saying it was the best thing I've ever seen, but I thought it was very nice. It was very enjoyable. And, uh, it was a good Halloween special. And I think one of the biggest virtues for me of the whole thing was that even if there were parts of it that you could say go awry, or if, like you said, the action at the end was a little too much, I think one of the best things about it is that it was under an hour. It did not demand of you that you're going to have to worry about watching another seven or ten episodes and wonder if it's going to end on a cliffhanger. It's not a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour movie that's going to belabor the point. Let's just drop in, visit some characters, and leave. And frankly, I'd like to see them do a lot more of this. Tell us some stories. Just tell some stories, and if... If the audience is there and we are genuinely interested enough to say, well, I'd like to know more, like you said, they'll be back. They'll do other stories with them. We'll find out more. But in the meantime, Marvel does have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of characters worth doing little stories about. And uh, the rumor going around, which the degree to which you can believe any of these things, 
is that Disney is apparently leaning toward, or Marvel Studios, whatever that division. It's all the same. It's all the same. Is leaning toward the idea of redeveloping some of the things they had initially planned as multi-episode series into specials like this. Mm -hmm. And I'd say, please do that. It's like, if something will sustain a series, fine, we'll find out. But for the beginning, drop us into some different corners of the universe, introduce some characters. Some of these kind of characters probably can only last an hour. Some of them might be more. I definitely would like more of Jack and Man-Thing and Elsa. They're so sweet together, truly. It's a great relation. And that's another thing, by the way. Marvel seems to really be defining itself lately as setting up really fun-to-watch warm friendships. More mm-hmm. recently in She-Hulk, we got Wong with uh, what Madison. Madison. Madison and Wongers. Yeah. So it's like one of the things they're really good at lately is showing that you can do these great little pairs. And now we have Jack and Ted just hanging out. And, and I don't know where they're going to get sushi from, although um, are they just going to hunt and get fish? And that's what they're calling sushi. I think Jack's just going to go to the store and <laughs> get some sushi get some get some takeout but uh yeah i i i liked so much of the way they handled man thing and and the way the the whole tone of this felt right and also did not overstay its welcome mm-hmm. and frankly to me that has become one of the most important things for me is don't overstay your welcome tell your story and end and let me decide you know, oh, maybe I'd be interested in more of that. Let mm-hmm. people decide what they're going to, you know, want to watch. And they may even find that they have more people going back and picking up some of these comics and wanting to read some of the stories that they come from. Like it could drive people back to that storytelling as well. Whether or not it will, hard to say. Well, A lot of audiences, I think, just want to see it. Well, but... here's what I'll say about that. Again, coming from years of having been there. One of the standard rules that we always used to repeat over and over again was, first of all, I'm saying I agree with you, <laughs> but but one of the things that we always used to repeat was, and that like store sales and numbers always seem to bear out, is that the success of a movie never drove anyone to go read comics. It just didn't work. Mm. The The prevailing wisdom was oh then maybe this will draw people to read more and it's like it doesn't happen because the people that go to see these movies aren't reading comics and nor are they suddenly going to become comic readers i mean myself included however having said that i think it's a little different now because a lot of the things you can now read you can now read through apps online or on your phone but i wonder to what degree any of them ever see an uptick in people looking up things digitally after mm. seeing something. I think it's possible that actually happens now to a certain degree. So yeah, very, very wonderful little homage to classic horror with the Marvel touch uh, that really sells it for any fan that wants to see some of these characters brought to life. Uh, there wasn't a lot in the way that I can remember of any other major easter eggs though either they kind of kept it nicely contained to these few characters they wanted to introduce with the idea that well maybe we'll pick up more and we also now know that because these characters exist there is a whole other world of monsters and weird creatures that clearly lurk in the shadows of the marvel universe Mm. that we haven't seen yet but we do know blades coming so vampires are going to be a part of it and i like it without the easter eggs i like that i can just come to it as an outsider and just enjoy a little horror story with very well-formed, likable characters and well-formed, unlikable characters. It's just it was just a very nice, tight character study set in a horror world that I liked spending time in. This is the werewolf break. Have you guessed who the werewolf is? When the first teaser trailers came out for Werewolf by Night, the way it was set up, a group of people coming to a mansion to take part in a hunt, it very clearly had echoes of Most Dangerous Game, which surely at this point must become one of the most, have have become one of the most overused premises for television shows and movies ever. I just saw something recently where they're making another Most Dangerous Game 
adaptation. But the most amusing part to me is if you go to the page on IMDb, it has just the title, which is literally Most Dangerous Game. They didn't change it. And underneath of it, it said plot details yet to be announced. Yeah, I think we're we're pretty certain what the plot details are going to be for Most Dangerous Game. We know what it's going to be. And um, everybody looked at the teaser and was like, oh, this looks like Beast Must Die. Which it turns out it was not. But everybody thought so. And I assume this probably led to a lot of people who have already seen that or loved it rewatching it. And in our case, since we'd never seen it before, but I knew of it and had often heard about the sort of legendary cheesiness of uh, one of its main uh, gimmicks, uh, thought, well, eventually I'm going to have to see it. And I thought, what a great opportunity. So we watched The Beast Must Die from 1974 first, and then went into Werewolf by Night. And as we said already, they're not really all that similar in the end after all, which is fine. But they still kind of dovetail nicely in certain respects. And uh, They kind of give you the same mood yeah in like people being contained in a space with people they don't really know all that well and trying to figure out like well who is this person what's this person about so in werewolf by night we've got a group of monster hunters who have been gathered together to hunt an unnamed monster and it just so happens one of their numbers a werewolf in the beast must die uh we have a wealthy game hunter who has a mansion tricked out with all manner of surveillance devices and equipment, which really does seem, as we said right at the beginning, like some major cheating going on, to uh, gather a group together of people because he intends to hunt one of them. This is much more most dangerous game territory also. But he is convinced that one of them is in fact a werewolf, and he intends to hunt the werewolf. So as you can see, not quite the same plot structure, but mansion hunt most dangerous game werewolf is there elements of it mm-hmm. you know but it's still very different stories and beast must die is basically most dangerous game with a werewolf it's also based on a short story by james blish who um wrote this short story called and i'm looking it up there shall be no darkness which itself was published by thrilling wonder stories and blish had done a bunch of star trek novelizations he was i think the first one to ever novelize star trek we are after all a star trek podcast yes and uh the opening of the movie is narrated by valentine dial noted british radio and tv actor who doctor who fans will remember as the black guardian and from something we've already talked about he's the caretaker dudley in the haunting but uh he's just the voice here and sets up the movie by telling us that we're about to watch a detective story with a werewolf. And late in the movie, we're going to be given a werewolf break. Where the movie will stop and we'll be given a chance. What was it? 30 seconds? 30 the, seconds. The clock runs over the faces of everyone in the cast. And it ticks away for 30 seconds. Giving you the chance, basically in the middle of the third act, to choose for yourself who you think the werewolf is. Out of who's left. Out of who's left, because a couple (laughs) people have died at that point, uh, including people we thought were prime candidates, but we're not. We're not very good werewolf detectives, as it turns out. Well, I'm, personally, I think our choice was better. Mm. I think the movie really went the wrong way with the werewolf. (laughs) But anyway, um, and so the rest of the movie plays out like a variation of Most Dangerous Game, but we also noted early on it's, it wound up without us even realizing it, it turned out to be the kind of movie that very well suits our show because it's another movie where you're in a house for a while or at least with, within the grounds of the house and it had echoes of Clue and House on Haunted Hill and a few other movies we know, obviously Most Dangerous Game, The Haunting also. Escape Room was one you mentioned. Yeah, a little bit. Escape Room. And of course, echoes of any other version of Most Dangerous Game. And in fact, there was in fact a moment where a character refers specifically to Bloodlust, which is an adaptation of Most Dangerous Game that we know from a Mystery Science Theater episode version of it. So when you think about it as well, any adaptation of Most Dangerous Game, you get partway through it and realize that whoever the hunter is in that scenario is really stacking the deck in order to be able right. to win that hunt. You know, Bloodlust, we watched probably more than other adaptations just because there's a Mystery Science Theater episode. Mm. But, you know, you realize at a certain point, oh, he 
you know, is going to give them a bullet, but then the gun is faulty. So even though it's like you're supposed to have this fairness, there is no fairness. Right. So he sort of tricked out this mansion in the same way. Like he's got his own surveillance system. He's got like a big solarium full of screens and buttons and switches. And it's like a little Polish guy who lives in that room and monitors the screens i guess he also they make a point a very nice point of explaining that although wolfbane doesn't grow in england he's been raising it so that in his uh like gardens a little with solarium i mean that would be. talk about drama queen he like walks into a parlor full of people with this wolfbane plant and just goes <laughs> and just blows wolfbane right. pollen everywhere and was like good luck not turning into a werewolf whichever one of you is a werewolf oh and another thing too this has an amazing cast actually it really does great cast of british character actors from a whole variety of other things including surely a few faces you'd recognize one of the most interesting parts of it is it starts off with a black man all dressed in black leather being pursued on the grounds of this mansion and then in a neat little reversal that really fits the era particularly of the early 70s and a time of a boom in black exploitation movies and movies in which black male leads had sort of taken to the forefront in the wake of people like Dwayne Jones and Night of the Living Dead and Sidney Poitier. You have our lead in this, who is Calvin Lockhart, who in the beginning of the movie, he looks like he's the one pursued. Turns out, He's the multi-millionaire game hunter who owns this place, who has decided to run the course first to test it out, but he's the one in charge of everything. Mm -hmm. And it's a pretty neat reverse. And also, for those who don't know, Calvin Lockhart had done a number of black exploitation movies. He is, in fact, the actor who played a character named Biggie Smalls that later became the inspiration for the musician to use the name later on. And he's great in this, too, as a very, ultimately, very unlikable abrasive character mm -hmm. which he needs to be and but he's great as this guy like so many of the most dangerous game characters so overly confident in his own ability but of course as you point out sure his ability because he's got a fortune and a ton of technology and he thinks he can control everything he also has a manic obsession yeah you know which is required in any kind of most dangerous game adaptation as well and also collected for the event are characters played by uh, a number of actors, like I said, a whole whole interesting group of people. First up, uh, Marlene Clark, who I, one day I gotta watch this, I didn't know, like, her main claim to fame, apart from this actually, was that she was the female lead, I think, in Ganja and Hess, the other Dwayne Jones mm -hmm. movie that's really only recently come more to light as a, a major cult film deserving of attention. The, the little Polish guy who's running all of his surveillance equipment that you mentioned is Anton Diffring, who I've now discovered was half Jewish and spent all of his career, like so many people of his time and, uh, you know, coming from where he did in Germany, playing Nazis all the time. And he's really cool in this uh, until he's taken out. <laughs> we thought he might be the werewolf at one point. Charles Gray, who is one of the many actors to play Blofeld and any Rocky Horror fan knows is the narrator from that. Michael Gambon, who I think now probably an entire generation just knows as Dumbledore, the second Dumbledore. He's rakish young Dumbledore here. Yeah, he's really 70s. He's got a mustache. And uh, and among the others, Peter Cushing, who's only a few years before Star Wars, uh, coming toward the end of his big run of Hammer and Amicus movies, and really definitely playing in his his what I least like. Peter Cushing playing in his goofy Doctor Who mode of acting, where he's doing a terrible German accent. It's really bad. And sort of being our exposition dump character is the professor who seems to know a lot about werewolves. And uh, as we'll talk about, I think he is the biggest missed opportunity in this whole movie. And boy, um, does he know a lot about a creature that ostensibly doesn't exist. Yeah. But he's, he's like a werewolf expert, and they just take everything he says as fact when it comes to werewolves. And it does all turn out to be true, right? It does. Yeah. yeah. No, I he's mean, like, right. He's never wrong about anything, mm -hmm. even though he can't possibly really know. And even as he points out, he's never really met one, So, which we thought was a, a misdirection. Turns out, nope. 
one of the interesting things about this movie is the mythology of the werewolf and the way it works, which is a little tweaked here and there. Actually, Werewolf by Night had that too. I mean, like it was interesting. Werewolf by Night, he made it very clear that he changes the moon, and they made it clear that thanks to the help of the Bloodstone, they can make that happen mm-hmm. outside of the regular thing. And he did that neat little thing where he's smelling Elsa, like maybe by smelling her, he'll be able to imprint on her and right. not hurt her. So that was kind of a nice little touch. In this, there's a lot of elements of traditional werewolf stuff, like the idea, like the the full moon um wolf bane being something silver being something that can hurt or kill them probably one of the neatest things in this is a very thing like moment where he makes all of them put a silver bullet in their mouths the idea being that a werewolf won't be able to do that and uh yeah and like this really sort of detailed creepy idea of well previously they'd passed around a silver candlestick but all you would have had to do was coat your hand with something so that it's not touching your skin but who's going to coat the inside of their mouth and it's just so macabre yeah it was really interesting ideas and one of the things that i initially said i was disappointed by but i totally understand your argument you actually liked was that when we do finally see the werewolf, it's played by a dog. They they got a big bushy-looking black dog to play the werewolf. There is no makeup, there's no humanoid-like creature, nor is there any attempt. And in 1974, you know, I don't know how they would have pulled it off anyway, really, certainly not well, is no kind of big creature. It's right. a dog. And I, initially I was kind of disappointed by that. I thought, oh, we're just going to have a, a big dog running around. But I kind of like it. it. Yeah. I mean, here's why. For starters, this is not a big budget movie. So you know that they're not going to have makeup and effects. And when you're not a big budget movie, sometimes you're tempted to take it a little too far with the low budget and go like killer shrew style where you just like strap on a weird hat to a dog to try to make it look like another creature Mm -hmm, right and like transform the animal you do have and instead they just went with a very wolf-like dog and to me it just sort of feels right that when you're talking about Hunter and Hunted, the only way that makes it feel less like most dangerous game is when the prey that you're hunting feels purely animal and in no way humanoid. And I think that's what sort of helps this type of story. Like they just commit to this being a purely animal Hmm. transformation you are a wolf not a man wolf but a wolf and i like that about it because it it makes it feel a little bit more real even Hmm. like a little less fantastical because anybody could picture what it would look like for a dog or a wolf to try to attack someone so that when ultimately when you have these fights and these struggles it doesn't really feel like it's in the realm of fantasy. And to a certain extent, you think, is there just like a really angry dog on this property? Like maybe there is no werewolf. Maybe he's just like out of his damn mind. And like, and then we do get the transformation at the end. Right. The, you know, good old fashioned montage transformation, very stilted, but Mm -hmm. proof that it was a real werewolf. One of the other things I really like about the premise of this is that he's very clearly done his research on everybody Mm -hmm. who's gathered there and that also feels a bit like the haunting to me yeah where he has only brought people to the house who he knows have had this documented interaction with the paranormal and, and with psychic phenomenon so in this case he's gathered a group of people together and in a way, perhaps in his own mind, thinks he's going to try to, like he does in every other way, stack the deck to try to like get as many opportunities to hunt a werewolf as possible. Is that he feels like any one of the people gathered there has an equal likelihood of actually being a werewolf. Didn't we point out, though, that early on, he makes one of the dumbest mistakes strategically when the werewolf is clearly out on the grounds. If I remember right, there's a part where the werewolf's clearly out on the grounds 
and you pointed out, the most obvious thing to do at that point is search all the rooms and see who's missing. Right. And he doesn't. Instead, he runs out to hunt it because he's so obsessed with the hunt idea, he totally gives up the opportunity to find out who it is. Which is ridiculous. Well, also, it's like 20 minutes into the movie and the movie would be over at that point. Because right. he'd be like, aha, <laughs> that person's not here. So, yeah, it's a, that's an unfortunate thing. But it's kind of an amazing group of people. And you know, from the outset, even if only one or none of these people are werewolves... Some of them are involved in some real shady business right. involving probably serial killing because you've got like a painter who just kind of roams around like a bohemian, but somehow bodies always show up. And weirdly, one of his paintings also showed the like deformed and like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like massacred body of mutilated. somebody yeah like a mutilated, mutilated. body <laughs> it's like in the painting the exact way the guy was found right another one is a, a a concert piano player and his protege both of whom travel the world a lot and weirdly mysteriously bodies seem to show up in their wake bodies and like, are showing up on everywhere. and on and on right except for peter gushing the the werewolfologist, mm-hmm. the, like Mr. Werewolf Professor. And he, I think he doesn't really present him as if he might be a werewolf. He just presents him as like, he's my my co-pilot here on this werewolf journey. Another thing, by the way, is that through Cushing's exposition, we get a very interesting take on werewolfism as a disease, as mm-hmm. a virus, that actually, if I remember right, he kind of says that anybody who gets it is sort of on a path to die from it. Like you're not going to like in the old days with like Lon Chaney's werewolf, there was even the idea that the wolfman is theoretically immortal. He keeps coming back from death. And this it's like, oh, you're going to die from this disease as well as change. But you're also dying. And and that's there was a different, interesting kind of take on well, the, it, the, the werewolf curse. It had a very interesting parallel to rabies, yeah. the way that he described it. Um, except for the fact that rabies does have treatment and obviously this sort of werewolfism didn't, but the whole, the whole thing with rabies is that even today, even in modern times, if you get infected with rabies, you need to get treated immediately. Immediately. You get treated immediately. There's a hundred percent survival rate to that. It's fine. However, if the rabies virus is a, basically given the time and the opportunity to activate in mm-hmm. your system it is fatal a hundred percent of the time right that you will not survive the rabies it will eventually deteriorate you and you will die what's interesting about this by the way is that in all we're talking about i feel like the impression someone listening might get is that we really really like this and i don't think we really did all that i mean like here's the thing this wasn't bad but it wasn't great. One of the things I have several notes on is how uneventful a lot of the movie winds mm. up feeling. Not a lot really happens throughout the movie. It's pretty boring in long stretches. Yeah. And we did note throughout there were some interesting shots. There's an interesting mirror shot in the banquet. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting shot through some destroyed equipment as he's like running out of the room. You like late in the movie, you're talking about how you really like the window treatments. And I'm thinking that tells you, you know, (laughs) how much the plot is working. If you're saying those window treatments are pretty good. But so it's not that good. I like it as a concept. It has a lot of good conceptual stuff. It has a couple interesting artsy shots. It wastes a lot of time. There are a couple interesting ideas. And then... Obviously, there's the cute little almost castle-esque gimmick at the end of, now we're going to take our werewolf break. Can you guess who the werewolf is? And as we pointed out at the end, probably one of the biggest flaws I feel is they really don't give you clues throughout the movie that are structured in a way to allow you to actually guess. Like, in other words, yes, we find out, like you said, several of these characters have histories that involve murders or strange events taking place around them this person may be sick and we don't know why this person is sick but none of it is structured like you structure a murder mystery where you give the audience the tools they need 
to potentially figure out the solution. Mm. There are no such clues laid out for you in a structured fashion. You're literally just guessing like, all right, I'll just pick this person. And when we got to that point, the thing that occurred to me based on who was left in the cast was that the most obvious to me anyway, and to you, it seemed, but not obvious in a bad way. I thought obvious in a way it's like this is the only choice you should make is that it should be Peter Cushing because of all the people in the cast, he was the one who was already a horror icon mm -hmm. and had done so many movies most often as the enemy of monsters, or at least as an ambiguous figure, mm -hmm. and also the character who throughout is telling us everything about werewolves, although I've never met one. And as you pointed out, what incredible cleverness it would have been to find out that when he says, I've never met one, yes, of course he hasn't, because he is one. So that's why he's never met one. And he he's maybe hoping to meet another one. And and he's the one that points out coating your hands. And when he puts the thing in his mouth, we were like, well, sure, he's probably put something in his mouth because he's the one setting the rules by saying this is how it works. It it made so much sense and so much to me horror genre payoff to have Peter Cushing himself turn out to be the werewolf. And then it turns out to be Michael Gambon, the concert pianist. <laughs> It was just, there was just no weight to that at all. It was meaningless. Here's the thing. I feel like I still really conceptually like the premise of this. I think it's an interesting take on a trope that was already kind of played out at that point in terms of most dangerous game type situations. I think the first 15 or 20 minutes of it are pretty good. I think it, it sets up an interesting premise. It introduces a cast of characters that you as a viewer are kind of looking at and thinking each time he describes one of the people at the party, you're like, they could be a werewolf. And then he describes the next one. You're like, Ooh, maybe that's the werewolf. And so in my head, I'm thinking I can see why they built in that werewolf break at the end, because everybody here kind of sounds like a werewolf and like, who could it possibly be? But I agree in that after that setup, they don't actually know how to deliver on it. They also don't really give many of these characters any chance to do anything interesting. Mostly they just sit around in parlors and complain. <laughs> yes. Because right. they all want to go home, including the werewolf. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's that. But the only thing I think for me that I felt like was kind of interesting or redeeming in the end and again 100% guarantee you this was not the intent of the filmmakers I don't think they tried to like imbue it with all of this meaning but I feel like in the end we have this whole group of people this whole party full of people only two of whom end up coming out alive on the other end of it and arguably, you could say the title, The Beast Must Die, kind of applies to everyone who was killed in their own way. It's possibly intentional. Including the werewolf being a beast that maybe some of the other party guests who were killed but weren't the werewolf really were like maniacs or serial killers in some way. Well, and right down to, I guess, what you're pointing out is like the biggest beast of all is our crazy is, obsessed is hunter. the hunter right you know who himself then has to hunt himself essentially in the end and oh and i almost missed a part about how they kind of do a quick uh misdirect they're really two werewolves mm -hmm. because his wife is one but only because she was scratched by the werewolf during the events of the movie not even her oh, dog oh, was the blood her That's dog right. was scratched by the werewolf that's right Towards the end of the movie, and she very sadly was stroking the dog with a hand that had a cut on it because she was angry and threw something into a mirror a couple hours prior. That's right. It's like a very convoluted, your wife is a werewolf now, sir, kind of moment. Yeah. And it's, it feels forced. Yeah. And it's a way of delivering like the bookend because at the very beginning, oh, and that was the, the house on Haunted Hill scene because at the beginning there's very. a scene of the two of them in their bedroom where she's like getting ready for the night and complaining. 
And that scene of them in the bedroom is a lot like all the byplay between Vincent Price and Carol Omar in their bedroom scenes. Right in like up to and including her basically saying, well, what if I turn out to be the werewolf? Well, that's my point. Is it when it said, what if I turn out to be a werewolf? And he like jokingly is leaving the room and he does like the gun, gun hand to go and get you. And of course he does do that at the end. He has right. to shoot her. But then it turns out she's not really the werewolf. She's a werewolf. <laughs> and it's our good friend, future head of Hogwarts, Michael Gambon, who's the werewolf. And Peter Cushing is just a really uh, terribly accented professor who's yeah. there for just to wear a really kicky sweater toward the end of the movie. And, and basically give you all the werewolf exposition. Such a waste of an opportunity. But it's Peter like he, he ends up coming out of it okay and the protege of the werewolf who had spent the entirety of, of the time that she was studying with him and a friend of him taking care of him and essentially being sort of your like Elsa to Jack in this situation mm. of like looking out for him and trying to protect him. And I or guess Jack to Ted or Jack to Ted. And like, ultimately I guess that sort of meant she didn't really warrant any kind of beast status. Cause it came from a place of love, love. And, yeah. and devotion. And so they kind of come out of it. And it also okay. has upbeat seventies pop music. Boy, does it it uh weirdly doesn't seem to know the difference between different types of music because it throughout plays the same music which is enjoyable it's it's not a bad soundtrack but it, it keeps describing it different ways in the subtitles it literally says at one point that it's upbeat 70s pop music and then that it's suspenseful orchestral music same music thanks for listening to ghouls in the house featuring natalie b Latovsky and arnold t blumberg you can find Natalie on Twitter at NBLitovsky, that's NBLit of Sky, and Arnold at Doctor of the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were Werewolf by Night, 2022, and The Beast Must Die, 1974. It's the sushi. Ghouls <laughs> yes. in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. You have 30 seconds to give your answer. <laughs> <laughs>